Well, good morning, everybody. I know a lot of folks are uh, out and traveling for the long weekend, and i um, very pleased that uh, some of you stuck around to worship together. Today, uh, among other things, is the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was the, the word Pentecost means 50th, that is the 50th day after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we read that on this day, the disciples were huddled in their upper room, waiting to see what God would do next. What is God going to do next? And perhaps you have been there too. Perhaps times are tough for you. Perhaps your job is iffy. Perhaps your family is in the midst of a crisis. Or perhaps you yourself, and no one else knows about it, but you are struggling with loneliness or depression Whatever circumstance you find yourself in, if you've been in that dark place, staring into the future with fear, you know what the disciples were experiencing as they looked into a future that seemed dark, hidden with great fear. And then God shows up in Acts chapter 2. We read that when the day of Pentecost came, They were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared on them and rested on them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were people in that area in Jerusalem at that time at the Feast of Pentecost and Jews, devout men, people of every nation had gathered and they heard this noise and they saw this group of people coming out and, and they were bewildered because they kept hearing their, the message, the gospel of Jesus in their own tongue, in their own language. And they marveled and questioned one another, what is this? What is happening? If you've ever waited to find out what was next for you in your life, what was next in God's plan for you, you are probably in the situation that they have been, that the disciples were in as well. And what we find out in the disciples and what I found in my own life is that whatever I expect God to do next, he never does. He's tricky like that. Whatever it is I'm expecting to happen doesn't happen. And we can be sure that what the disciples expected to happen was not an outpouring of the Holy Spirit driving them out to proclaim and to do miracles and to preach. They wanted a safe life, an easy life. They wanted God to take the, the, the problems and the, the fears that they had away, but the Spirit shows up. And what does the Spirit do? It doesn't make them safer. It endangers them even more. It doesn't take away their problems. It creates more problems. We know this, though, that the empowering, dangerous, problem-causing moment was the greatest moment in human history, the moment when the church just exploded forth and the gospel went into all the world, and you are sitting here today a direct descendant of that good news, a direct descendant of Pentecost itself. We know Jesus because the Spirit came upon them that day in power and in fire. There are people who would hear this message. Maybe some of you are even secretly saying it to yourself. I don't know that I want that kind of life. I want my life to be safe, regimented, 
I, I want to know tomorrow. I want to have the bank account. I want everything to be lined up. That's the life I want. You can take your spirit. You can take your gospel. You just keep that stuff. But there are some of you here today who would sell everything you have, go to the ends of the earth just to taste the smallest portion of the power of that spirit, the smallest portion of the filling of that presence. Which person are you here today? Do you want the safe, easy, broad road, or do you want that narrow, power-filled, dangerous road that at the end of it stands Jesus himself? Which road do you want? I think that's the question that sits at our doorstep on the day of Pentecost. You see, ODCC, y'all, have been asking this question since before I came here. In fact, the first questions and first conversations I had with the elders um, before I came and, and with the search committee were these questions of, we want to know what's next. We, we want to meet God where he's at. We want to be driven out. We want to be changed. We want to see something powerful happen here. Has that changed? So part of my prayer life for the past year and a half has been on my knees asking God, God, show us what's next. But that's a dangerous prayer because once you put your fate in God's hands, he is likely to mess it up. Praise God. I've been praying that God would drive us out, that God would show us something new, that he would impassion us, that he would inflame us, that he would grow us, and not just grow us numerically, but grow us deeper, change us, make us like himself. That's the passion, the driving force of these prayers. And this is what I notice out of Pentecost. That the disciples in this moment, in this upper room, they're so focused on themselves. They're so worried about the future. They're so concerned about what's next that this is consuming all of their thoughts. And when the Spirit falls upon them, the Spirit changes them, not by changing the circumstances around them. They are still in as much danger, if not more, after the Spirit falls. The problems still remain, but the focus has changed. Everything else pales in comparison and falls away. Those light and momentary afflictions, those things that have been consuming their thoughts are nothing anymore and they are consumed with a passion to share Jesus. The desire at the very core of their beings like fires, Jeremiah said, shut up in their bones to share Jesus for the glory of God by the power of the Holy Spirit for the salvation of the world. Do you feel that hunger this morning? Is that the fire in your belly? Is that the, the burning desire in your bones? Is that the call that's on your spirit? They all stay the same. Those fears, those dangers, those troubles, they don't disappear. But we are changed. We are changed. Now this brings up a difficult question, I think, because there are lots of churches across the world and we're, we're not in charge of them, but we are in charge of us. And as we've asked the question of what is next for ODCC, our, our, our mission, what is our purpose in life? What solution are we going to offer to the world? And what we've come up with again and again is this is the call of the gospel from Genesis to Revelation to reveal Christ to the world, to be the ambassadors of Jesus, to share Jesus for the glory of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, for the salvation of the world and that Brothers and sisters, that guests and friends, that is what ODC is all about. That is our mission here. That is our burning desire. 
Now this brings up, of course, the question of how do we make sure that this happens? How do we make sure that this isn't just platitudes, but this is in reality the core of our identity, who we are? How do we do this? How do you, who maybe are a visitor, or you who are a guest that's been here maybe for a few weeks, or you who have just been here forever, but all you've been doing is, is, is etching out the butt shape in the pew you're in? I'm calling you out. Because we don't have room here for people who just want to kill a couple hours on Sunday morning. We want a church where every single person who says, I belong to that church, says, that mission is my mission. My mission is to share Jesus in everything I say and everything I do. My burning, consuming passion is here. And I'm going to prove it by what I say and what I do. Is that your mission? Is that your mission on this Pentecost Sunday, 2015? How do we begin to capture a vision for what that would look like? We ask that same question as we begin thinking about our mission statement that we uh, initiated last fall. And it drove us to the scriptures as it always should. So if you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses uh, 2 through 10. We going? There we go. 2 through 10. I'm going to read this uh, scripture completely, and then we'll kind of go back in and, and look at what it has to say specifically. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 10 say this. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers and remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all of the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we have nothing to say. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven who he raised from the dead, Jesus. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath that is to come. Now there's a lot of content in there, a lot of things we could talk about, but I want to pick out specifically three things that I notice this church being praised for or being called to do. And the first thing we see, even as we open up into verse 2, is this, the primacy and priority of prayer and worship. Prayer and worship. Paul opens in verse 2 and he says, I give thanks um, for all of you, Constantly mentioning, mentioning you in our prayers and remembering before our God and Father all of the things that God has done in and through them. The word here we would use to categorize all of this, this prayer and praise is the word worship. That Paul is offering to God worth, thanking God. I am giving you what you are due for what you have done. If that makes sense to you. 
Paul is giving thanks and attributing, ascribing worth to God, primarily for what has been done in their lives. And this, I think, gives us a side insight into what God is doing perhaps in your life and in the life of our church, because we've seen a lot of change here at ODCC. And I don't know if you have noticed it, because I'm sort of in the mix of it, maybe more than y'all are. Um, Last year, our average was 114 people um, on a Sunday. This year, beginning in January, y'all remember January, right? (laughs) Beginning with January up to this date, our average is 134 people. And those people who are coming uh, are people that I'm obviously personally interacting with. These are people uh, who didn't know Jesus, who had no church, who have been left out of church, who have been rejected by the church, who have experienced pain. We have people coming here now who are really experiencing the gospel. And you know the first thing I always, as I touch base and I ask what the experience was in their lives, what did you experience at ODCC? They say the first thing we noticed was how welcoming and loving this body was. I say this to you to encourage you, to, to encourage you to do it even more and not wait for like the greeting time when Paul says, all right, now go, but to do it out there, right? So as soon as people come in, they have a flood, a flurry of love and welcome that they would see Jesus not only in what we say from the stage, but what we say when people first walk in the door. They would experience the love of God because they experience your love. And this is, of course, not to our glory. This is not because of some clever marketing ploy or because of anything other than this, that God has smiled upon us for a moment. We would say, as the reformers say, sole dea gloria, that is, glory to God alone. Everything that is done here at ODCC and everything that is done in your personal life that is giving glory to God is from, by, and to, and for, only for the glory of God. Never forget that. Never forget that. All of this is for him. Now our atheist friends, and some of you have some atheist friends, might say that this, excuse me, shows some self-aggrandizement or selfishness in God. I think the opposite is true. I think it calls me to faith and to hope And a sense of peace. Because if the believers in Thessalonica, as we're reading here in 1 Thessalonians, or the believers at Pentecost, if those believers had to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, or if they had to solve their sin problem, if they had to somehow find a way to make life right, if they had to do that kind of stuff by their own power or volition, what kind of good news is that? What kind of good news is that? None at all. That's the kind of news that we hear from all quarters of society. But if part of the gospel is this, please hear me, is this, you don't have to try so hard. God already loves you. You don't have to try so hard. You've already been forgiven. You don't have to try so hard. God is already pleased with you. And what he wants more than anything else is for us to begin to rest in prayer and in worship, to embrace all that he has done for us, and just to revel in its glory. The Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it this way, and this is a way that they used to teach. You would ask a question, and then somebody else would give you the rote answer. This is the way you would teach your children back in the Puritan days. And the question is this, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? What is the purpose of mankind? What is the purpose of your life? The answer is this, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Do you enjoy God? Do you just enjoy him? I really want Emery just to love hanging out with dad, climbing on me and pulling my beard, which has become a new thing. 
I just want her to enjoy it. She doesn't have to do anything to impress me. God wants the same from us, not so much the beard pulling, but God wants the same thing from us. He wants us to enjoy life. He wants us to enjoy him. And Paul isn't just pointing out his own like, way of life. He's also calling them to the same thing. If you flip maybe a page over in your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians 5, as he's wrapping this letter up, he's exhorting this church at Thessalonica, he's exhorting them to practice a certain way of life. And I love, whoa, too far. Were you doing that? You're doing it. No, I'm doing it. Okay. I'm bumping things. I apologize. This, uh, I love these verses here. I love uh, the apothem of this. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is, and here underline in, this, in your Bibles, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What is God's will for your life? To rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks in all situations. This is a sermon in and of itself. But I think the point here is to begin with prayer. If we are not a praying church, God can do very little here. If you aren't on your knees for our church, then our church will accomplish very little. I've discovered this in my own life and in my ministry that when I begin to make decisions on my own, without consulting God, usually it ends in disaster. It always, always without fail, ends with me outside of the grander blessings of God. Because God can make good stuff out of our junk. God can make good things happen out of, our mis- out of our mistakes. But how much greater can it be if we really track with him and really seek him and really ask him, God, what would you have me do? How would you have me live? How would you have me share Jesus? Prayer. And notice how worship, though, encircles prayer. We begin with praise, and we end with praise. And this is why there's such a heavy focus on our Sunday morning services. That's why this is such an important time. This is why we encourage you. Well, this is why the Bible encourages you, if you remember Hebrews. The Bible exhorts you not to neglect meeting together, but rather to meet together as often as possible so that your lives may be full of praise and your lives may be full of prayer. God is beginning to renew our minds in this because by making prayer and worship a priority, by actively setting aside our, our problems and our trials and our emotions sometimes even, setting aside all these things that are dragging us down and focusing on God, we begin to focus on those things that matter most. Actively praying, praising God, we immediately Lose focus on those things, those light and momentary distractions from the eternal weight of glory that has been purchased for you by Jesus Christ our Lord. So in light of all of this, a huge focus has been this time right here, right now. This is a big part of what we do. Because we read here, let's go back. Rejoice how often? And pray how often? And give thanks how often? I noticed something interesting in this section here, and that's a, a shocking lack of the word complaining. So I, I just immediately wanted to ask, God, when do, we, when do we get to add complaining? Like here, or here, or fighting, maybe here? Um, being down in the dumps over, I don't know, over here? 
Where can we put these things in that are not to be seen? Even in our darkest times, we give glory to God. We, we emphasize the God's grace because out of the darkness, out of the valley of the shadow of death, he brings us back to the mountain. We trust in him fully and completely. And not only then is this what we see in the Sunday morning service, but we also have an emphasis on family worship. That if you are a family of five, you should be reading scripture and praying and singing psalms together. If you are a family of one, you should be reading scripture, praising God, and, and, and praying there. If you want to be that family of one and want to come over to our house at eight, usually there's a family of three um, on whatever road we live on. I blanked on it. Hanover, thank you. She leads me home. Like, I'm just lost, wandering around Portage. Where do I live? Um, but gathering together is even more important. And we see this, don't we, in the, in the New Testament, that they're gathering together and they're praying. And so our mission when we say share Jesus is talking about the way in which we share Jesus by giving Jesus praise, by giving him worship, by, by, by praising and praying to God. And this is some of the ways that we do it. Encouraging family worship and making sure that you are here gathering on Sunday morning. The second thing I noticed back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 12, or verses 2 through 10 is this that there is an important emphasis on community. Notice in verse 2, at the very beginning, he says, we give thanks. Not I give thanks. We give thanks. This letter, this letter is written to a church from a church. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. Uh, you might remember with me that church is just a loan word um, from, uh, from Latin. It's a loan word that means a political group of people People have gathered for a political cause. We are a gathered group of people. We might call it community. That's become popular these days. So when we say share Jesus, we're not just talking about the individual or personal experience you might have and maybe personal quiet time. We're talking about how we together experience Jesus Christ. As we notice there in verse 2. Moreover, throughout this text, as you read through um, 2 through 10, we saw over and over again these words, you and your, you and your. And the way I think we read these because of our individualism here in America is that Paul is speaking to you, right? You as an individual. But if you were in the South, as we call God's country, you would know how to translate that better because down there we say y'all. And this is a you all passage. He's not using you singularly, he's using it plurally. And so every time he's speaking here, he's not speaking to me as an individual. He's speaking to the body of gathered believers. So he says, y'all, or if you want to go deeper into the hills, all y'all, or if you want to go even deeper, and I can never say it right, youans. So any one of those three you want to write into your Bible here, go for it. But those are what Paul is saying. He's saying all of you are a living witness to the power of Jesus Christ, the power of the gospel, the power, transforming power of God through the Holy Spirit. All y'all, right? All y'all. And this is why Paul so often when he speaks of the church, aside from brothers and sisters, which points to us as a family, he uses the word, anybody know? His favorite metaphor for the church, the body, right? The body. That we are a body built together. As some of you are hands, and some of you are feet, and some of you are the spleen, and we're not really sure what to do with you, but if we lose you, Adrian, we don't know what to do. I mean, we, you, we'd be lost. Where'd the spleen go? And we'd be in a great deal of pain, wouldn't we? Great deal of pain. 
And so we see as a body, the, 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 each and every one of you has an imperative and important place here in this church. Each one of you has something that no one else can offer. And if we find ourselves, if we find one of the body members sick, then the whole body is sick. Or if one member of the body is fighting against another member of the body, the body is crippled and we're unable to complete our mission to share Jesus because we're just worried about getting well. And praise God, I really believe that we are a church that is well. And so I want to call you as a church, a church that is well, a church that is healthy, a church that is loving one another, to do that even more in community, but to also then go forth in community and preach the good news. Not to ever think that you're alone in this. And isn't that what we see in, in Acts as a result of Pentecost? The Spirit comes upon the body of believers and they're filled and they're driven out and they begin to preach and all that. And when all of this is said and done, we get like this, this, this broad picture of the life of this new church in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 46. And it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to breaking bread and to prayer, that they didn't call any of their possessions their own, but willingly sold them and gave the proceeds to whoever had need within the body. And we read that day by day, that is every single day, they were gathering together in the temple courts, gathering together in one another's homes, that they were breaking bread together, which is an allusion to the Lord's Supper. And they were sharing their food with glad and generous hearts. And as the church lived together, that great witness, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Do you want to see people added to the church daily being saved? Do we want to see that? That only happens when we as a body are living forth this great mission we've been given to share Jesus. Let me put it another way. The world does not need to see another good Christian. The world does not need to see another good Christian. Because a good Christian is just another good person who happens to be a Christian. And good people, they come and they go. We can set them aside. But a hundred Good people, 134 good people, whose mission is to declare Jesus and whose mission is to show one another how much they love and support and bear with one another and grow with one another and suffer with one another and weep with one another and pray for one another. As they see a whole body of believers doing this kind of life, they begin to see what it looks like to follow Jesus. They begin to see a glimpse even of the coming of the kingdom of God as it begins to break into our midst through what we do. And this is the very core of our... Whoops, I skipped that. Sorry. This is the very core of our small churches. Uh, we're trying to sort of subvert the word group, any small groups, subvert the word church, because we often think of church as just what we do on Sunday morning when everyone's together. But church is gathered believers worshiping, praying, and witnessing, and loving one another, Right? So some of us are going to have church tonight at the Funk's house. It's especially good because it's funky. Okay, all right, let me just say I had to do that. Some of us are going to have church at the Boz house. Some of us are going to have church at the Boz house. Some of us are going to have church after church with Jack and Kayla in the youth room, doubling up on the church. Good job, right? The church is when we gather together to love one another. In fact, these groups are beginning to expand and grow. Our group um, has grown so much that Paul, we're going to have to split up, and Paul's going to take another group, and I'm going to take another group because it's just too big. There's too much going on, and we can't handle them in our tiny little house. <laughs> so, so we see the growth that's expanding, that God is doing good works in our midst. But this is the core of the small church. It's not to learn more about God 
through rote learning. It is about learning more about God by living life together, by loving one another. So when we ask the question of where do you need to plug in beyond just your worshiping together and meeting together and making sure you're here on Sunday morning, part of that is also to plug into these small churches, to gather and to learn and to love one another, to grow. It's the only way that you're going to get to know somebody is to sit across a table with some pizza on the plate and say, tell me about your life. Tell me about what's going on. That's what this is all about. You need to plug in to that. Finally, the, the th- thing that I see also out of this, and lastly, is proclamation. Notice in verse 8 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. The word of the Lord has gone forth to such an extent that it's, it's expanding beyond just that city. And it's going throughout this subcontinent that's going on there. It's just going all over the place. And it's going even beyond that area, which is a massive area. It's like us saying people in Wisconsin all the way to this coast are hearing the good news of Oakland Drive Christian Church. You want to hear that? Man, I'd love for that to be what, what started. Like, do you see how those people love each other? Do you see how they proclaim the gospel? Do you see how they're faithful in affliction and how they bear with one another and how they're selling their possessions so that other people in the church can be brought up and, and, and needs can be bent? No one is hungry and no one is lonely and everyone is gathered together for prayer and worship. And if we had a church like that, what kind of revival might break out? What kind of change might happen? What kind of lives might be saved? And how different would your own life be? Christian who's been a Christian for years and years, perhaps, but have sort of kept it as a, at a personal level. It's not the way the scriptures think. We are together in this. You know, I notice that Jesus asks us to do this. It's funny the things that he doesn't ask us to do, but what does he ask us to do? Not a whole lot, a very simple thing, one thing. He says, Go therefore and make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe everything I've commanded. That's a pretty simple task, isn't it? Not out there to save the world, not out there to change the world. You are out there to proclaim the gospel. You are out there to share Jesus. You are out there to be an ambassador for Christ. That is what you want, and that is your mission. That is what we mean by share Jesus, to proclaim that gospel. I think it's very important to say that here that we are not in charge of saving the world because we are in an age of fear. Although I think we've probably always been in an age of fear. Our 24-hour news cycle likes to keep that in our face, though. We have fears of climate change and fears of wars and fears of terrorism and fears of Ebola outbreaks and fears of this and fears of that. And we're, we're so worried about the world and we're so worried about where the world is headed and we're so worried about what we're going to pass on to our kids and we're worried about all of these things. And Jesus says, forget that stuff. I've got that in my hands. You focus on this. You proclaim the gospel. That's your job. Proclaim the gospel. That's what I think Jesus means when he says, you know, uh, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's one thing. It's one thing. Proclaim the gospel. We see that happening here in this church. And Paul praises them for it. 
We are commissioned to do that, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of God, be reconciled to God. That God is speaking through you, church, this message to Portage, to Kalamazoo, to Michigan, to the United States, to the world is proclaiming this through you. And if you aren't proclaiming it, if we aren't speaking it, they aren't hearing it. And if they aren't hearing it, then they have no chance at salvation. Notice the last verse here in, uh, in chapter 1, verse 10 that we read. And what are they doing? They're waiting for the sun from heaven, which uh, Ken talked about. Who raised him from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from what? The wrath to come. I know that we don't like to talk about that very much, but the truth of the matter is that the salvation of people hangs in the balance and that we have been given the most important job that anyone has ever been given, and that is this, to declare Jesus to those who have not heard it because if they don't hear that message, they will experience the wrath of God. That is a weighty message. That sin must be punished, the world must be set right, and those who have done wrong in the world do not belong in the one that's to come. Those who have not accepted Jesus do not belong in the kingdom of God. And you then are the voice. You are the voice of God to them. Please, please, we beg you, be reconciled to God before it is too late because when the Lamb comes again, it is wrath and fire and flame and judgment. It is a fearsome thing to stand before a real, living God. And people don't know that message because we've been too chicken to say it. But it is our message. It is a message of great hope, of great salvation, of life and of grace and of peace. But without it, there is loss. As Jesus tells the stories, there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so we cannot get sidetracked by anything other than this mission. We can't get sidetracked by anything other than this call to share Jesus, literally to proclaim his name to others. But how do we accomplish that? Because we need to learn what we're saying before we can say it, right? And so we've put into place our Sunday college, which doesn't mean college-age kids, which I didn't realize that first would be a confusing thing, but it has been. What we mean by this is next-level education. Sunday school is for kids. Both of those all went together. Sunday school is for kids. School, right? I'm expecting that you believers who have been in this for a while to begin maturing beyond school, start heading to college, start learning some deep stuff, start reading hard books, start stretching your mind, start stretching yourself so that when somebody asks a question, you are prepared to answer, so that you are prepared to preach the gospel. This is also what our Wednesday night program is all about. We have training for kids, we have training for adults, we have training for everyone. Be here to learn. Be here to prepare. Be here because you have been given a commission. And if you have been given a commission, you know what that means? That means you will be held to account. Each and every one of us, held to account. What did we say? What did we do? And this story of Pentecost is so so powerful. It's so driving. It's such an important message. 
These believers have been given it and they, they deliver it out to everyone and they go all over the place proclaiming house to house, city to city, marketplace to marketplace, delivering this message of good news, proclaiming to all people. They didn't let it stay with them. You, I know, most of you here this morning are Christians. You're safe. You're resting in the love of God and prayer and worship. But there are so many people who are not. And I want that burden to be laid on your back. I want that burden to be held in your heart. I want you to recognize and to see this and to feel it and to let it drive you out of this place. So that together we are, as Oakland Drive Christian Church, seeking and saving the lost. Isn't that what Jesus did for you? Isn't that what he did for me? And so the question that sort of comes at this moment of conclusion as we talk about our mission to share Jesus, as we talk about our, our, our heart here, what's in your heart? What decision do you need to make? What part of this do you need to plug into? Do you need to make sure you're here on Sunday morning because you're getting lazy and skipping out? Or you need to make sure that you're learning here uh, for Sunday college or you're here on Wednesday nights when we have them uh, starting in the fall? Do you need to plug into a small church Begin to worship and get to know people in that way. What do you need to do? Who do you need to go and see? Who do you need to proclaim to? What do you need to do? Don't let this Pentecost go by the wayside without making a decision today about what God is calling you to be, what God is calling you to do. Let's think about that as we stand and sing this song.